Thank you for joining us for IEB There. And now your host, Brad Behrens. Over to you, Brad. Hi, everybody. Welcome to IAB There. My name is Brad Behrens. I am the Editor-in-Chief here at the Interactive Advertising Bureau. IAB There is our daily live stream show where we are connecting the interactive advertising community, uh, sharing information and digging in on the important topics that are affecting us all today. On today's show, uh, our topic is innovation in a crisis. I'm very proud to be welcoming shortly uh, my friend Kumar Mehta. Kumar is the author of the Innovation Biome, a book that I heartily recommend, heartily recommend to all of you. He's a Forbes columnist, and he is also a colleague of mine at the Center for the Digital Future at the Annenberg School at USC. He's a senior research fellow there, uh, as am I. Uh, and today we're talking about what happens in a global crisis as we are all experiencing with coronavirus. Uh, how should people and institutions and in organizations organizations respond to that crisis? How does innovation find itself fueled and spurred by the uh, crisis? Um, Kumar, in addition to uh, being a Forbes columnist uh, and, uh, and the author of the Innovation Biome, has a long history as both an entrepreneur and a senior executive at Microsoft. Uh, the four most recent of his columns, which uh, provoked um, the invitation to ask him to join us today, are Why Coronavirus Will Stimulate Innovation, Never Waste a Downturn, uh, Will Coronavirus Level the Playing Field, Welcome to the Isolation Economy. Uh, for those of you who have questions as we are moving along, we ask you to post them on Twitter. Use, please, the hashtag, all caps, one word, IAB there. Uh, one of our producers is monitoring the Twitter feed and will serve those questions up to us as they come. Uh, if you can ask the, the gang to please bring Kumar to join us on screen. Uh, as I said, Dr. Kumar Mehta is gonna be coming on in just a moment. Kumar, welcome to IAB There. Thank you, Brad. So, Thank you so much for coming. You're coming to us from uh, from the hot zone. You're in Seattle today. Yes, yes, that's where so, I live. That's uh, where I've been for a long time. And uh, we kind of saw the early days of coronavirus here and we're still uh, coping. Well, I'm coming at you, uh, all of you from Portland, Oregon. We're uh, we're doing okay, but we're, we're in lockdown just like everybody else in the country. Um, I want to start off by asking uh, you to talk about previous crises, and uh, you wrote, a, as, a, as I said a moment ago, a terrific column about how crisis, crises always spur innovation. Can you dig in on that a little bit? Uh, you know, what are a couple of examples of things that have come out of crises in the past? Yeah, that's, uh, so as, so what we're going through now is unique. You know, we, we'll probably never see anything like what we're going through now in our lifetimes, and these things happen uh, truly once in a lifetime, if, if, even, uh, if, if even more rare. But if you look at the history of, of pandemics specifically and or more broadly uh, disasters that could be you know, human-made like wars or natural disasters, uh, there always seems to be a wave of innovation. If you look at the Great Plague, uh, which was in the 1300s, which decimated Europe, uh, it just spurred, I mean, it was a truly bad time uh, anywhere between 50 and 100 million people died. Uh, the economy of the entire continent came to a standstill, uh, you know, far worse than what we are expecting, even in our worst case scenarios today. 
but uh, but it spurred a wave of innovation. Uh, what ended up happening was that uh, because of the unfortunate uh, uh, deaths of millions and millions and millions of people, labor became scarce. And when labor became scarce, society got equalized because uh, people ended up paying a lot more money for that scarce labor, and and the gap between the wealthy and the poor uh, flattened. And as labor became scarce, people wanted to do more. Uh, they invented things like clocks because they wanted to monitor uh, how much time people are working or other productivity tools. And it just spawned a wave of innovations, both societal and uh, economical and business-based. Our entire notion of life is governed by clocks, uh, governed by having access to the time at all times on our wrists or by asking a digital assistant. And it's fascinating that this was driven by by response to a scarcity in labor. Uh, so uh, that's, that's fascinating. And then glasses, I think, I'm wearing a pair right now, were also something that you said came yes. out of a crisis. Yes, from, uh, from the same crisis uh, along, uh, and, and glasses are one of the good things that came out of it. Uh, everything that you could do at the time to improve efficiency. Uh, so for example, eyeglasses, you know, because again, you needed to work more, you needed to be more productive, something like eyeglasses became, uh, became used. Uh, things like, uh, uh, modern medicine, medicine as we know, was something else that emerged from uh, from that. So prior to the Great Plague, medicine was always rooted in religion, and uh, it just didn't work in in getting the virus out. And this spawned kind of the whole culture of experimentation, uh, pharmacology, kind of the, just how we start started thinking about medicine and how, how we started thinking about disease. Of course, this was way before anybody even knew what germs were, let alone virus. Uh, but uh, but. It just spawned just a new way of thinking. One of the significant differences between the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918 and what we're experiencing now is that now you know, we have incubators. We know what antibiotics are. The, our knowledge uh, is, has come so very far in 102 years. They just on the glasses thing, I, I remember because my earlier career as a historian that uh, the iconography around Arabs, uh, in the, which is an older term, uh, in the Middle East 400, 500 years ago was that they were always wearing glasses because that technology came out of the Middle East. And so that was a conventional way of portraying uh, someone from Egypt. So let's go on. Um, one of the other columns that you wrote uh, was uh, never waste a downturn, emerge exceptional. And one of my catchphrases is for the last few weeks has been, you don't want to waste a perfectly good crisis. I think what you're talking about is similar. But you have some uh, concrete things that you were saying in the Forbes column about what managers and leaders should be doing at this moment. Can you walk us through some of those things, please? Uh, sure, sure. So again, you know, going back to uh, to what I said a little bit earlier, this kind of what we're going through now is unprecedented. We're we're never going to see this. Uh, this is not going to happen again in our lifetimes. And uh, of course, we just have the businesses all over the world, large and small, are getting hammered. I mean, the hurt is just so, so bad. But for but if you are going to emerge from the other side, and if you're going to come out okay, uh, this is your opportunity to actually kind of rethink your business model. Just rethink some, ask yourself some core fundamental questions. Uh, so, you know, our businesses and companies have evolved the way we've kind of had them evolve, partly driven by uh, partly driven by people and partly driven by the environment. But this is really a good time for you to step back and, and see, are you doing the right things? Are you focusing on your core? You know, companies generally tend to, 
uh, uh, focus on areas where they think they'll make a lot of money or where they think that they need to go and compete against some other competitors, but, uh, but they often deviate from the core. So this is the time to ask yourself if you're really focusing on the core things that are gonna help you. Uh, and there's some other attributes you should really be questioning yourself if you're running a business. You know, do you have the belief and confidence that you're gonna be successful? That's something else that really, really uh, uh, is, is essential as you try to become an exceptional organization. Or do you have the commitment or do you have the, uh, the tenacity and the effort? I mean, there's just some fundamental questions. One thing I talk about is, do you have an improvement community? I'm just going to ask about this. What is an improvement community? An improve, so businesses uh, or anything is now just too complex than it was. Uh, anything now, uh, today is just harder than it used to be. There are so many more things you need to know uh, in order to be successful in business and no matter what your business is. And in order to do that, you're just not going to be an expert in everything yourselves. You need a, a network of people who have some certain uh, subject matter expertise in different areas and have all that work together. Uh, think of it as an entourage of a... Uh, of a world-class tennis player, they've got a uh, you know physical therapist and a nutritionist and a uh, you know some set of training partners and coaches, and they they kind of travel with this entourage. You know, somebody to fix the strings on their racket. All these different pockets of expertise. You know, if you're a business uh, owner or a business manager, do you have your entourage, so to speak? So these are some of the things where you know you're you're all sitting at home. You're all thinking about, hey, what am I going to do when this thing is all over? You know beyond the obvious, beyond the things that you need to do to keep your business alive and keep your client relationships going, just ask yourself some of these fundamental questions. Right, and I think it's a, a great time to, to, to really push hard on, you know, do we need to be doing things the old way? Also, uh, you know, when the stakes are lower, uh, you know, just do something. This show, I be there, we're only in our second week, and, and we just you know, we really need to do this. We need to, to be available to our members and to the community. Uh, people are hungry to just see live people out there somewhere. And turn out, uh, we have a formidable team, the people who I always list at the end of every episode who are producing it. Um, they figured it out and they figured it out in days. And I am deliriously happy, so proud of them uh, because sometimes, uh, sometimes perfect is the enemy of done and just giving it a shot. And so it sounds like you're, um, the, the notion of an improvement com community also sounds like a, some people have their personal board of directors where, you know, a community of people that they, they gather together. Um, let's take a, a step back from the columns for a moment. I do want to get to the book, which, um, you know, it's a couple of years old now. Uh, I remember loving it and reviewing it uh, very positively at the time. There are numberless books about innovation. The thing that I believe distinguishes your approach and what you discuss in the book is you have a, um, an antipathy to organizations that centralize innovation or have a chief innovation officer or outsource it. Uh, and instead you talk about creating something throughout the entire culture of an organization focused on innovation, the biome. Can you tell us about uh, both what is that, but also in particular at this moment, uh, what should business leaders be thinking about during this time of crisis? That's a great question. And, and, and thanks for uh, putting the book out there. Uh, uh, I'm just surprised uh, by how much interest there is in innovation right now. And, and the book is about a two, about two years old. And last week, for the first time, it reached uh, number one on Amazon uh, bestseller list. So that's something that- Congratulations. Should, 
things. But that's just something that shows how, uh, how people are already thinking about what they should be doing. But, but to your question, uh, when you think of the most innovative companies out there at any given point in time, you, whether it's Google or Microsoft or Apple or Amazon or whoever is on your list of most innovative companies, they've never become who they are through their innovation departments. They've become who they are because innovation has been part of everything they've done. Uh, they've become who they are because everyone has been able to innovate. And, and that's just the culture, the biome that I encourage people to develop. Centralizing innovation to a small group of people. First of all, who would you even bring into that group? You know, who, I, I wouldn't know how to pick people. And in fact, the people we think we should pick are actually the wrong people you'd pick. And that's a different uh, discussion. But I, I do believe that when you have, you don't know what the great ideas are. And when you self-select a small group to innovate, your best innovators actually leave you. You think of, you know, we're using Zoom right now, you know, incredibly right. successful organization that used to be a division of Cisco. And, and the Zoom founder actually wanted to help WebEx, the Cisco, uh, the, the Cisco division where he worked. He wanted to make WebEx a better product, but, but the company kind of resisted a little bit and he went off and, and created Zoom. Uh, so at companies lose innovation, uh, in a, their best innovators because they don't let everyone innovate and they don't encourage innovation across and that's what my book is about. And that's what I talk about creating a culture or a biome that encourages everyone to innovate just because you don't know where the best ideas are. So I, I just, I'd love to get this down to like a concrete question that a, uh, a CEO or a business leader can ask herself or himself. Uh, is, there, is there one? I mean, one that might pop, for example, is, uh, you know, if you have a chief innovation officer who then in your opinion, uh, your judgment, that's a mistake, right? That would be, so the question would be, do I have a chief innovation officer? What other concrete things where might people have? And again, think about it in this, uh, in this moment of crisis, please. So, so I think it depends on what your chief innovation officer does. If you hire, I think you may be hurting yourself if you hire or have an innovation team to go out and come up with ideas for you, because that's very limited and that actually prevents the larger part of your organization to not innovate because I believe it's somebody else's job. But if you have an innovation department or a chief officer that promotes uh, innovation to your organization, then that's probably a thing because then you're actually permeating that culture throughout the organization, if, if you understand between the two. Um, you faded a little out a little bit, at least as far as I could hear in that. But let me, what I, what I think you were saying is, if the job of the chief innovation officer is to encourage and foment innovation throughout the organization, that's a good thing. If right. that job, person's job is to centralize and marginalize innovation, that's a bad thing. So what you're basically saying is it was a stupid question that I was proposing uh, and you, you, uh, you had the much, the much smarter version uh, of it. So thank you. Um, now, uh, Marketing with Meaning, which I believe is the Twitter alias of Bob Gilbreth, who's also another author, uh, wrote a book a few years back called The Next Evolution of Marketing, has posed a question to us uh, and his question, thank you, Bob, is uh, any suggestions for startups that are just launching right now? Um, which I think is a, a difficult and important question. Yeah, no, I think it's a great question. And, and I think, uh, and this is something else I've written about recently, is that this time, uh, you know, there are uh, revolutions, uh, plagues, uh, pandemics, wars, any of these big seismic shifts 
kind of equalize uh, society in, in many ways. You know, uh, society was equalized after the, after the wars. We we've already talked about uh, what happened after the Great Plague. And so for startups, it's a very unique time because as we emerge from this, uh, people's uh, uh, wants and needs and desires and what they value is going to change from uh, what, what was there before we went into this. And startups are in a very unique position to cater to these evolving customers. Uh, and so I would advise them to actually be in tune with their customers and in tune with where the where the needs and, and market is going and, and align their products to actually uh, help with the emerging needs, not with the uh, prior needs. Uh, now you spoke in one of your columns about something like this, which is, uh, and I, in my notes, I said, is that there's this is the other curve to flatten that you know, we're, talk, we're hearing the CDC and our state and local governments talking about the reason we're isolating is to flatten the curve of the virus. But you're talking about a different kind of curve. Uh, and I, what I remember from what you were saying earlier uh, in the columns was that your belief is that smaller and weaker businesses are going to get hit hard early but that if they're nimble, they'll be able to uh, to survive and thrive, and that the incumbents are going to be hit uh, harder later on. And so this equalization and leveling, it seems to fit into that. Now, I, what I'd really love to dig in on is why. And part of it, I, I think, is you know all businesses look the same on a computer, right? That it's very easy to have a world-class website uh, and that, you know, if, and to make your product look as good as a product that's going to come out of the R&D arm of Procter & Gamble, for example. But, but I'm more curious about what you have to say, which is why is it do you think that, we, that there's this, 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 the second curve that we're flattening? Right. So the marketplace curve uh, will flatten. So whenever something like this, uh, again, you know, like wars or disease, uh, these big shifts, uh, everything ends up getting flat. So, for example, the small companies that, uh, and then we're seeing this today, uh, they're, they're the hit hardest and most immediately. But they're nimble, they're flexible, they can morph in any way they want, they're just a few people. They tend to come out of this quickly. The, the largest of the large companies tend to okay because they can ride the wave. And, uh, and, and, and in some cases, if they cannot, they're just so big that they're bailed out and, and they're just too big to fit. They survive, but they become defensive and cautious and, and not quite as innovative. The other companies that are kind of large, but not the, the handful of the very largest, they're the ones that suffer the most because uh, they kind of lose their revenue streams, but they can't control their costs, so they can't fast enough. And when things change, they're the ones that are kind of caught a little bit flat-footed. So what ends up happening is that uh, that society in general, the economy equalizes where the small get a little bit bigger, they have more opportunity, the big get a little bit slower, and, and there's a new set of winners. And so that's kind of the point I was trying to make. And this has been studied uh, uh, for the past 10,000 years uh, of, of human existence. And just about any time something as big as happened, uh, it's tended to equalize society. And that's kind of what I write about. So it's an opportunity for startups uh, to, to actually manage of the shifts that are inevitable. And, and it's also kind of a caution flag that if you're a larger company, you know, you just can't step back and, and uh, be overtaken. Um, you know, ordinarily, since we think, you know, you know at best quarter to quarter, uh, it's just so delightful to hear someone framing something in terms of the last 10,000 years uh, of human existence. So thank you uh, for that. Um, 
the other equalization you were talking about is in terms of wealth. And one of the things you were speaking about, you know, and one of the things we're hearing about is there's never been a greater wealth disparity in this country than right now, where, you know, the top 1% of folks have extraordinary wealth and then it gets lower and lower the farther you get. And it sounds like one of the implications of what you're saying is that we should expect some kind of redistribution or rejiggering of that because of new opportunities after the crisis. Is that is that accurate? That That is accurate uh, from the sense that, well, I, I can't pre uh, predict the future, but if you look at every time something like this has happened, uh, wealth distribution and wealth inequality came down after the two world wars, wealth inequality came down after uh, uh, plagues, wealth equality came down after revolutions. Uh, uh, so historically, anything like this reduces inequality. Now for the past uh, for the past 40, 50 years, we haven't had anything like this. And which is probably why the uh, income disparity has kind of uh, grown to its, uh, to its highest level. But, you know, coming out of this again, you know, we can only speculate how bad this is gonna be uh, by all indications, it is gonna be pretty bad. But as we come out of this, uh, some of that in inequality should be reduced. Um. So I'm going to move on to a different topic, which is uh, the uh, the isolation economy, which is a, a term that you coined. Uh, we have we've seen even before the coronavirus, we saw some really interesting movements like the um, uh, WeWork, uh, you know, postponing its uh, its IPO. Uh, we just saw today that SoftBank is pulling out of uh, the next round. We saw uh, the formidable uh, growth of Peloton, uh, part in part because of a remarkable piece of creative, which is the sort of the controversial video. Uh, but something you wrote, which was, you wrote this, and I'm gonna say it twice because I, I needed to read it twice. Uh, Systemic industry transformation happens when capital infusion follows societal trends, never the other way around. So again, let me say that one more time. Systemic industry transformation happens when capital infusion follows societal trends, never the other way around. Can you unpack that for me? What does that mean? And can you give me any concrete examples? Sure. So, so if you think about, you know, we've been talking about the sharing economy for the past 10 years. Now in the sharing economy, the whole concept was, hey, you know, I have a car, I don't drive it for 90% of the time. Why don't I let someone else use it? Or I have a home that I don't use for X amount of time. Why don't I let someone else use it? What happened with the sharing economy was that there were these ideas that we had and we tried to market those ideas to people. We tried to tell people, hey, sh uh, share your power tools, sh share your car, share pretty much anything you have and, and that's, that's unused or underutilized. And that actually uh, resulted in WeWork and Uber and all these companies, which are great ideas, but, they, but we had to spend so much time and energy and money in, in, in marketing and demand generation that these companies have yet to kind of show up with a viable business model, uh, at least a profitable even though millions and millions of people around the world use Uber, the company is still searching to make up. And the same is true for many other uh, sharing economy companies. With the isolation economy, it's the other way around. These are, this is something that's driven by society. We are staying at home. You know, we, we are using Zoom, we're using Peloton, we're using Instacart, we're using all these things. We've got ultra fast broadband at home. We've got Netflix that we wanna use. So there are all these trends that are going on and uh, companies that fulfill these needs are going to be incredibly successful. And coronavirus is not creating this trend. You know, we've been, it almost feels like we've been 
preparing for this for, for the last 10 years with all these things that, that I just spoke about. But uh, coronavirus is accelerating or catalyzing these trends. And, and consequently, companies that, that serve you in this time of change are the ones that are going to come out ahead. So I think that there's a there's a concrete takeaway that we can we can layer on top of this, and it, it harkens back to uh, the conversation that uh, Tal Hollosen uh, uh, and Eric John had last Thursday, uh, and about the data that Innovid, which is Tal's company, has seen. And so, what again? This the the idea that uh, you know, following social trends, it, it seems like it's a really remarkable opportunity for companies to look at their data. Look at your first party data, look at your usage data. What are the inflection points? What's changing? What's, you know, what are things that are indicative that, that your entire customer base may be evolving in one direction or another? So again, I, if, when possible, if we can you know, connect what you're talking about to concrete actions that companies can take, I really like to do that. And so, so that's one of the things that strikes me about what you just said, which is you, you have this repository of data, first party data, third party data that often goes unexamined. Now is the time to go take a good look. Is that? I don't agree more. Okay. You're absolutely right. Because that's what's going to give you the early indicators of what's going on, concrete, quantitative. If you don't have a data scientist, it's probably time to rent one uh, on staff. So um, we also were hearing about a ton of you know, short-term changes. I mean, people aren't going to restaurants. They're not going to bars. They shouldn't be going to the beaches in Florida, but they still are. Uh, we don't have sporting events. Uh, we are seeing first-run movies moving very quickly into you know, on-demand premium. I'm all very torn about this. On the one hand, uh, we know that for thousands of years, people have wanted to gather, people want to, to touch each other, they want to, to, to be next to each other. On the other hand, we're now finding that a bunch of these things are optional. Uh, that we're able to have this conversation uh, through you know, my internet connection and that of the IB and that of you in your home uh, in Seattle. Do you have a sense of which changes are gonna be permanent and which changes are going to be transient? That's a good question. Uh, so we're inherently social. You know, we're going to want to interact with people. We will go back to the movies. We will go back to the mall. We will go to sporting events. We will want to cheer our teams and do all those things. I just think that we just won't do to the same intensity as before, just because we've learned that we don't have to, it's because we've learned that we've been trained for, for a few months that we can do things like these. But yet we'll still want to go to conferences, real conferences and, and, and exchange business cards and network like we've always done, but probably not as many as before. We probably will be not want to fly as much. You know, we'll probably fly for tourism because you, know, you can't do that over Zoom, but we can certainly do a lot of what we flew for business travel for over Zoom or over some other technologies. So I think that there are going to be some fundamental uh, changes. I'm not saying that anything, any one thing is going to become permanent, but there's going to be a set of small changes that are going to change how, how we uh, live. And, and business uh, 10 or 15 years from now is going to look very different than it did even six months ago. So I've been wondering whether or not, and I'm going to, I'm speculating and just want to know, see if you have a, a point of view on this. The answer, uh, no, is fine. Uh, I've been wondering if our present situation is going to accelerate the uptake on uh, virtual reality and uh, augmented reality. Just this, you know, the idea that right now we're looking, I'm looking at a laptop as are you, uh, but we also have, we already have sort of cheap versions and then expensive versions where you could be in a virtual, uh, virtual room, 
whether we're as cartoon characters or, or like this. Do you have an opinion on that? I think I think it will. I mean, I'm not an expert in that area, but I, I see no reason why it shouldn't because again, this what we're going through now is forcing us to try all these new things. And with this virtual or augmented reality, you know, when, when you, uh, you know, the uh, situations like these pandemics serve as a, almost as an uh, experimentation uh, kind of environment to try out new ideas. And this is exactly when new ideas like these are being tried out and, and them will actually succeed. Um, thank you. So um, just let me hold the book up one more time. This is the innovation biome. Uh, when companies innovate, all of our lives get better. Uh, our guest today is Kumar Mehta, uh, who is the author of that book, a senior research fellow at the Center for the Digital Future at the USC Annenberg School, Forbes columnist, and my friend Kumar. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope to have you back sometime soon. Thank you, Brad. I really enjoyed this, and thank you for having me on your show. So let me do the credits now. Uh, our, uh, actually, before we do that, on tomorrow's show, Hazel Baker of Reuters will join us to discuss navigating coronavirus misinformation. For those of you who uh, were at the annual leadership meeting in Palm Springs, uh, she did a remarkable presentation about deep fakes. We're going to dig in with her about misinformation. Uh, IAB There is a production of the Interactive Advertising Bureau. Our show today was produced by Connor Healy. Honor Healy, I don't want to mispronounce your name. Uh, Joe Ons, John Ward, and Twafika Mahinadin. I'm Brad Behrens, Editor-in-Chief here at the IAB. Thank you so much for watching. Please join us tomorrow because if it is 2 p.m. Eastern time on a weekday, uh, you know it's time to IAB there. Take care, everybody, and thanks for watching.